Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our Cold War screening and Q&A, where the award-winning Pavel Pavlikovsky was in conversation with James Marsh. Pavel spoke to James about his writing process, his use of aspect ratio, and how the film was received in Poland. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you. I'd like to introduce James Marsh, a very old friend of mine, a wonderful director who's going to be quizzing me or making conversation. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> so, here we are. Uh, I think there are um, quite a few filmmakers in the audience, so I want to ask you a few sort of filmmaker questions first. Um, here's an obvious one, but one that I'm genuinely intrigued by. The choice of aspect ratio in your last two films is, is quite particular and gives you very interesting you know, things. But did you find, tell me why you chose that aspect ratio and what it offered you beyond a more conventional widescreen format? Uh, it was uh, more intuitive than like a rational decision. It just felt, um, it felt uh, right and convenient uh, for the period but also uh, I like uh, to, I realize I like to limit the field of vision generally and to uh, direct where people are looking at any given time. And, uh, and this really limits, you know, literally where you're looking and it helps you to keep some mystery of what's going outside the shot. You know, you can suggest stuff through sounds. And in this film where the camera moves, you then reveal other things. But but you can go like in that shot on the river, you know, f when Zula reveals that she was snitching on on Victor. You really are close on these two faces, and it's a very good format for portraits and double portraits. And then when they when she he rises, she rises, then he walks away. Then we widen and we see a lot of of things. So, so basically, that control of what you see uh, is 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 very useful for me. So it's the opposite vanity um, that I've had in my work is going wide and big and cinemascope. Um, I remember, do you remember when Super 16 was invented? Yes, I remember. Because yes, we used to make docs on 16 millimeter, which was this kind of format, no? And there was no problem. It was much bo more boxy than, than yeah, widescreen. So yeah. what one thing that I really got from that, um, as you say, the, the boundaries you put on that format is the, at the world beyond the frame, which is what a filmmaker like Bresson does so beautifully. You kind of, you're aware of something and it invites you to speculate on that, which I thought was a, one of the reasons I really enjoyed when I saw Ida for the first time. I yeah. thought, oh my God, that's a really great use of it. So let's talk, um, the second bold choice in the modern world is black and white, um, which you cannot do in any commercial mm -hmm. cinema venture. You're just not allowed to. Um, again, it, it's, a very, you know, it's a very conscious choice. And what informed that for Cold War? I mean, and for Ida too, if you want to open up a bit. For, for Ida, I wanted, I suppose it, it had something to do with the period, but above all, with a certain uh, d uh, desire to make it abstract and, and uh, simplify the world, reduce it to to few things, uh, and make it austere, I suppose. Uh, oh, whereas here, I wanted, like, it felt like a black and white film immediately, but then at some point, you know, my DP Wukar said, oh, come on, it's embarrassing to do two bloody black and white films in a row. Like, <laughs> so I said, okay, well, let's think, if it was color, what kind of color would it be? 
because Poland in the early 50s, or late 40s, didn't have much color. So uh, every choice felt kind of arbitrary. We toyed with the idea of using a kind of imitating a Soviet Technicolor. You know, the, the Soviets developed a certain, you know, celluloid uh, stock, uh, which which was a bit like Technicolor, but with very washed out greens and reds. And and then uh, Orvo did something similar. That was like weird East German. Orvo was the East German. Yeah. Was a bit better, but the Soviet one was really off. You know, off target. But, uh, so he thought, okay, we can sort of imitate that. It's quite fun. I've seen some films uh, from the period. But that uh, would have felt really contrived and um, and and frivolous somehow. In black and white, felt more honest, like an honest deal with the audience. We know that the world isn't black and white, but we're showing it to you in black and white. And what's more, it actually gave us uh, the opportunity to make it much more punchy and contrasty. You know, because I mean, if you have no contrasting colors, you know, why not just use contrast in black and white? So, uh, so we pushed for very kind of contrasty uh, black and white, much more so than Ida. You know, Ida was a little bit more, it was softer, um, uh, and and you know that involved the costumes, look, you know, locations, props, and stuff. You know, really go for contrast, uh, uh, um, and um, and then you know in post production we we kind of at first we kind of corrected the the. Um, the, the picture, and then we uncorrected it again, you know, so we left some scenes really kind of white, you know, and then you go to something really dark, you know, just to keep the audience uh, on their toes and to contribute to the feeling of tension, conflict, you know, I mean, as the title suggested, it's about, it's about conflict, this film. Um, and, and also, then when we moved to Paris, there's a kind of element of glamour, especially on stage, you know, with strong key light, and she's got a great face. So it worked in many ways. I mean, the black and white keeps changing. You know, the, the Polish section at the beginning is is not so contrasty, obviously. And then as we go to Paris, it gets stronger and stronger. Berlin, Paris. Mm, yeah. So what so was, it was it was flexible. One um, difference, I think, from I have a daughter called Ida. That's why I'm saying it's Ida. Um, is that you in that film? You very rarely move the camera. I think you move it two or three times towards the end of the film. Uh, whereas in this film, the camera is more curious about where it goes and how it goes there. Um, was that again, uh, I guess it was a response to what the material, how you were going to embrace the musicality of the film? Yes, and, and the fact that, that, um, that our heroine has a lot of energy mm. and, her <laughs> and she activates the camera. You know, it would be absurd to not to well, that try... That is a brilliant example of that. Exactly, and um, she changes directions, you know, so it's kind of great fun to... Um, you know, to, to play with movement, but there's never a kind of just camera movement for the sake of uh, camera movement, for the, you know, just to show that we're directing well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a vanity that, you know, that many filmmakers fall into. Well, there's been an idea behind the movement for it to really yeah, everything to feel right. I, I want everything to feel kind of necessary, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and nothing to... F I want people to forget in a way that they're watching... Uh, that they're watching manipulation of a f director, you know, which is kind of bonkers to say because the film is so manipulated. It's not true, but, but it's. But I, I just I have this kind of uh, urge to make everything seem as if it's kind of God-given, accidental beauty. Well, I think you achieve that, <laughs> um, particularly as you say from the sort of manic energy of the, the yeah. female protagonist. Um, and the music also, you know, requires some camera movement. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another. My next question was about the music, um, and in Ida. The music, I think, is entirely what characters encounter 
it, there's no score. Uh, this is, I remember saying to you, this is a musical you've made here uh, in, in, some, in some respects. And the music, again, is all embedded in the film. There's no score. Yeah. And you, you put your, you, you introduce that straight away with that brilliant sort of strange musician at the front. Yeah. Like very much like a documentary. Um, tell me about that choice and, the, and, the, and resisting score, which is, again, something that we all kind of overuse, I think. And I always think of that Oscar Wilde, uh, uh, um, Oscar Wilde, you know, beware the potency of cheap music. And you don't use any score at all in those two uh, yeah. films. And I guess that's a conscious choice, clearly. Um, yeah. But do you, would you foresee ever using score in a, in a, in a film? I really not, you know. Mm. <laughs> but if I can't help it, if, if, I mean, if there's tension in the shot and in the sequence, then why use music you know mm. uh, unless it's a character in the story uh, you can do so much by minimal sound use you know just a tiny bit and creates huge tension so ideally the film should be musical without music you know mm. even if it doesn't have so many songs you know there's a kind of musical rhythm to editing to the whole c um, composition of the film and that should be enough in theory of course in practice you know it's kind of but also you've got yeah, the whole film is about music yeah, and then so and then the fact that I actually introduced this folk ensemble and make both heroes uh, musicians or professionals in music, it helps, yeah, of course, and uh, and that gave me the license to really to play with the music from beginning to end. I, basically, I used three folk tunes, which I picked from the repertoire of a, of a really existing folk ensemble called Mazowsze, very popular in Poland ever since 1949. Uh, and I picked three tunes that would work as ba like source music, as primitive folk songs. And I asked these folk musicians found all over Poland to perform them in their own way. Then we have the kind of official orchestrated, choreographed version, the so-called fake lore. No, uh, and then, then we have the same three tunes uh, appear in Paris. One as a kind of bebop number, this this thing that we come across when when we first cut to Paris, and and and, and Victor is with his quintet playing. It's the same song we hear the woman on the accordion at the very beginning, and it's the song they dance to uh, at the premiere of Mazurek. And then there's the the song that everyone probably recognizes as the same song, this kind of lyrical, it becomes a kind of uh, jazzy lyrical chanson. And the third one, which it appears at the beginning as a kind of wailing of peasant women, Dolina, Dolina, then it becomes L'un de toi, L'un de toi, you know, it's the song over which they fall out in the, in the recording studio. So, Can you sing a bit more? <laughs> yeah, if you, afterwards, if who wants to stay on, yeah, I'll perform. Um, uh, yeah. do, do you watch um, films as you're writing and preparing a film? Do you, are you one of these directors that tends to look at reference points in other people's work or condition your thinking with other filmmakers? Not as such. I mean, I watch films anyway, all, all the time. Uh, uh, but, it, but not as something to pick f f from, but just it's, a, it's my way of... Mm, thinking the medium, meditating, you know, watch bad films, good films. Uh, so there are no concrete films I watch uh, to prepare for the film. Uh, but I do try to watch a lot of good movies that just cheer myself up that good movies are possible, you know, so I can watch eight and a half, you know, and nothing to do with this, but 
but I love it, you know, just kind of as a, as a, as a, as a therapy. Um, and, um, but, but of course, you know, over the years, you know, I, I've been watching films for, you know, 50 years more or less, so I've watched all the, you know, some like it, Hot, Casablanca, Tarkovsky, uh, Bresson, everything, Bergman, <laughs> so it's all there jumbled up, and when critics say, oh, this is a bit like Casablanca, well, maybe, or it's a bit like Tarkovsky, which is bonkers, Casablanca, Tarkovsky, well, you've mentioned in passing, are there any particular filmmakers that you sort of keep going back to because they cheer Some you up? Fetish, not filmmakers, but fetish films, for sure. Uh, and one of them is uh, Vivre sa vie. I love that film. Mm. You know, it's like a fetish film. I haven't seen it for a while, but I've seen it many, many times. The Mirror, you know, Tarkovsky, mm. for sure. You know, uh, Eight and a Half. Early Milos Forman, you know, Blonde in Love, or Loves of a Blonde. So there are certain films that I can know when I go back, they won't let me down, you know? And yes, I uh, have those too. And, yeah. um, and it, uh, I know, Pavel, what, when we first met each other, you were a, a documentary filmmaker. How was that? So were you. Uh, well, indeed, I, well, I was trying to be. Um, you were succeeding a bit me more too. than I was. Yes, exactly. Um, but do, do you think that, that sort of background in documentary filmmaking, uh, do, do, you, do you feel those things that you brought into your dramatic work from stylistically, thematically? Yeah. De definitely. Um, uh, it's partly this thing, you know, what's happening in front of the camera, do I believe in it, is it interesting, you know, rather mm. than is it like in the script, mm. you know. Uh, and the second thing is this thinking on your feet, you know, that, that in documentaries I used to shoot them always in two stages, I just shot something intuitively and then cut a bit and then kind of shot a bit more. Uh, and, I, and I was good at just quickly changing when the light changed, something changed, you know, just, just changing the whole scenario and I kept that into fiction films you know to the uh, you know to, to the dismay of producers often you know because they suddenly and suddenly something that was kind of fresh in rehearsals like goes dead on you when you actually shoot it so okay let's think let's you know change the lighting change the framing cut some lines you know and see what happens so that kind of sculpting in the, with the living you know material is something I got the confidence to do it from documentary I think you know that the fact that a lot of the time you actually do your best thinking on your feet rather than behind your laptop where you're kind of imagining the story. So yeah, not I mean, always, you need both, you know, but, but you, have, you need to have a bit of freedom to, to kind of to, to be flexible and not to go with a bad idea when it suddenly is clear. To be honest with yourself, is this good? Is this, am I believing in it? Is this interesting, poetic? Well, the picture is strong enough, you know? So, so if it isn't, then what do we do about it? Do you um, do you itemize your mistakes when you finish a film? Do you, do you do you have a process where you think, oh, I wish I'd done it differently or better, or there's certain things I should have done I didn't do, and certain things I did do I shouldn't have done? Mm, not anymore. Uh, no, Thank but you. I but and I also I try not to watch my film after it goes <laughs> out into the world. You know, yeah. So, uh, but also because I'm I'm trying to like play it safe in a way and try and shoot two scenes a day and make sure they're working, you know, and, and, and make sure the scenes I don't quite believe in are put to the back of the schedule <laughs> and that I might have a better idea. So I'm actually protecting myself from having to shoot stuff that from experience I sense it's not going to be good. Yes, I can see the process you're in allows you to know that something isn't working at the point of shooting and then you're saying you have to intervene and you make it different, better. And also I cut as, uh, while I'm shooting. So, you know, I have a five-day weeks that's kind of built into my contract or the very idea of the film. So five day weeks, one day to rest, and one day in the cutting room for 
tweaking, editing, and rewriting, you know, or, or looking for better, better scenes for later. So it's a really an organic process that, in a sense, as you start a film, you're constantly revising, yeah. adding, taking away. And I'm away. in control and being kind of honest with myself, is it working or not? And not looking for excuses, oh, it didn't work because, you know, mm. I, I'm the only one responsible, uh, but I have to give myself the freedom to do something about it. I know that you grew up partly here, partly in Poland, but spent a lot of your professional life here before moving back to Poland. What do you think that experience of being British, not ever British in your soul, but British by sort of conditioning, and you t do you, have you, was that useful to you going back to Poland? Do you see Poland in, obviously in a very different way from a child? Yes, but it's not so much being British as being making uh, being an outsider generally you know mm -hmm. even when i was in britain i i was i always had an accent i was you know i i never kind of fully embraced this as an identity you know well, we need that, but <laughs> well you know but sometimes you know, it's good for for people to you know to be outside a bit and the same in poland although you know i'm very very f you know attached to it and fond of it and i love living in warsaw now uh, but but everyone says you know but your look is it's not exactly british but it's you know you look from outside and i and it's not a it's not a problem. It's I think it's important. I don't know whether to look from outside is important, but to look against the grain or to look at what's timeless and universal and essential in stuff. So I like showing stories or making stories or showing a world that's informed by history or by politics. But I never go with the narrative that people have of it. You know, I try to go against the grain and see what's actually. What's the kind of mythical fairy tale element in this stuff? You know that actually, you know, makes it timeless and universal. What we're showing, while at the same time bringing history to life. You know, because for me that's always the best way of bringing something to life. History is when you don't actually tackle history. You know, you don't actually illustrate what it was like, but you just show how people behave in these conditions. You know. Well, you yeah. feel the weight of that in both of those two films, Ida, and, and there's a sort of world around the characters influencing what they're doing yeah. and oppressing them in some way. But what I loved about both films is that they they transcend that and it's about their feelings and emotions, that they're conditioned and, and inhibited sometimes by a political system. But that's what one should go for, you know. Mm. Even when I made documentaries in Britain, I remember making films, Serbian epics, you know, where I tried to look at a conflict that was really hot, but <laughs> just step back and think, okay, what is what is it really about this thing? You know, I mean, away from headlines and kind of war reporting and all that. So I think it's like I've got this like an ingrained desire to slightly look um, at an angle and look for for what's timeless. Are there sort of definite childhood memories that are caught up in the two Polish films? Well, the characters in Zimna Wojna and Cold War are very similar to my parents, I have to say, and the mechanics of the relationship. And just physically, they're quite similar, but also uh, that relationship. So it's very much the uh, the aura of my parents is very much there. Uh, the songs, I, I, I remember all these folk songs that actually we used to hate at the time because, you know, the Polish... Polish radio was full of that fake lore, you know, it was the official, sp officially sponsored art form, and we we were listening to bootleg versions of Rolling Stones or Kings or something. So, but the radio was full of that. But actually, you know, it's like with ABBA, you know, you hated it at the time, but now you listen to Dancing Queen and yes. it's quite nice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's something to do with aging. 
so, so the music for sure, some landscapes, you know, th that landscape where mm, Zula jumps into the river, you know, I used to spend a lot of time on that river uh, with my father with a you know, boat. And I love these, you know, when I wrote that scene, I thought I, I'm, that's where I'm going to shoot it. Uh, and then we couldn't shoot it there because it was very far from the other locations until one of the two producers found local fund that would fund this one filming day. <laughs> anyway, that's sorry. But um, yeah, so there are a lot of like images f uh, from, from memory here. It and there. feels that way, like a, 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 and in a good way, like they're memories. Um, what was the reaction to this film in Poland? I know that Ida caused some controversy and you got caught up in the sort of bigger politics of Poland, which is itself yeah. a very complicated and slightly scary sort of situation at the moment. Yeah. But but this film, um, it, it's a it's a popular hit. It hit a chord, you know. So a lot of people went to see it, like like eight hundred and fifty thousand apparently. Last time we looked, so it's huge for black and white film told so obliquely. Um, so it's it's good, and the and I think the rediscovery of folk music had something to do with it. I suspect the maybe uh, the, the fact it's a melodrama, you know, so people can sort of get into it and identify with one or the other character and some element of their story. I don't know, but it's very popular. And there's no political uh, backlash, although there are some echoes, you know, the character of Kaczmarek, you know, this careerist who's mm. mastered a certain lingo and kind of will go far. Uh, you know, we've got plenty of those now. We said a week. And, um, and they went... <laughs> But also the way the folk ensemble is being kind of co-opted. Uh, it's just happened, you know, half a year ago that this very folk ensemble on which I based mine, Mazowsze, they suddenly got huge subsidies from this from the government, Ministry of Culture, because it's people's art, you know. It's uh, and it's you know while they're cutting you know, funding to some difficult theatres and and changing museums and you know, but, but this type of art, you know, is very much promoted again. I hope not as a result of my film. <laughs> um, can you foresee coming back to Britain to make a film? Very much so, yeah. And and strangely, now that I haven't been here for you know six years, I'm beginning to s get an ang a perspective on Britain. And and very often it works like that. You know, you have to kind of go away to start finding the thing that you knew f that you were familiar with a little bit exotic and interesting and. Uh, and kind of universally interesting. So um, the Britain in the 70s is beginning to uh, to be uh, of <laughs> to, to sort of haunt me. Was that me, what you knew me. growing up, essentially? I, when, I, when I came in 71 to Britain, mm. I was 14 or 13 and a half, uh, and I didn't speak a word of English, so I was taking it in very, you know, uh, uh, visually and orally, and, mm. uh, and the music was great, and I loved London, you know, which was kind of a wild place. Uh, I don't know, in a different way from today, uh, uh, and um, and just when you don't know the language, you watch things very differently, and and they're kind of exotic and interesting, mysterious. You know, then you discover that very banal, and you know. But anyway, but I'm I'm basically kind of revising, uh, uh, you know, th that and 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 you know maybe I'll make a film. You know, set because in our 70s. politics and our you know our situation in the next few years can be very interesting. Yeah. And you kind of, uh, the only thing you could say about it is that of, that often produces very interesting creative work. I mean, if you look at Greek cinema, you yeah. know, Romanian cinema, yeah, yeah. even Polish cinema with the work you're doing, yeah. and probably other filmmakers too, where you feel like... There's a kind of nervousness. There's which, exactly which this kind of anxiety yeah, yeah. To, to show itself in people's yeah. work. And, uh, and, the, and the Brits are very good in crisis, no? I mean, they, they kind of pick, they pick up and... Um, kind of <laughs> this one, maybe not. Um, <laughs> 
we'll see in two years. Um, I don't know if they've got time for questions from the audience, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, good idea, yes. So anyone out there like to ask questions? Uh, so you put your hand up immediately. So I think we can give you a microphone, apparently. <laughs> Wonderful work. Superb, sublime. I love music. It was clear to me that music informed the way that you wrote the story. Could you talk about your background in music? I understand that you have worked as a musician. It seemed to be such an integral part of the film, uh, which is so unusual. Um, though you called it a musical, I, I think that's, that's maligning it in a way because music it's for me was, was, for me, the central character. It really came through. Well, I was never a professional musician, but I played a lot, and I had bands, you know, I was in, into rock and roll to start with, then I discovered jazz, I used to play the piano, uh, and Coltrane, McCoy Tyner, that kind of these sort of things. Uh, but I, you know, with age, I discover I love all sorts of musics, you know, I used to be quite dogmatic about this, <laughs> now I just love, you know, f and, and this, this kind of source music that I came across while researching for the film, it was Fantastic, you know, these, these bagpipe players. And, and uh, so I'm looking for m music wherever I can find it. And I, I love listening to something called Late Junction, you know, on BBC Three. Even in Poland, I can listen to it. Have you ever? Anyway, I recommend it. It's great because they throw together everything. And there's always something interesting. So, yes, so I was, uh, I'm, I'm quite musical, you know, I played a lot. And, and, I, uh, and when I write a script, I very often put the kind of musical reference to into the scene, you know, m even if I don't later use it, but it kind of helps me imagine the kind of to color the, the scene. Um, um, so yeah, yes, music is is important, and I also I'm quite I just some, I'm quite good at editing, you know, musically. Although I have an editor and so on, but I kind of I, I, I have a sort of sense of syncopation and stuff, you know, praising my own work here. But but uh, but it's true that music is something that you know it's always been with me and it's part of my life. Any other questions from... Yes, you had your hand up earlier. Um, hi. I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the screenplay, how that came to be, if it was certain character that then led you to tell the story. And the dialogue's also really punchy, and there's not that much of it, but when it's there, it's really revealing. So if you could talk about that process. Screenplay. It, 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 it's, it was a very formless process, you know, because the, the story... Uh, started, I wrote the first version like 10 years ago, encouraged by my producer who was sitting there, because I told her the story, more or less, you know, of Victor and Zula. And I kind of wrote it and it seemed so enormous and so kind of hopelessly complicated that I kind of abandoned it. But periodically I went back to it. And after Ida, I really kind of sat down with, uh, with Piotr Borkowski, who was like, like a sounding board, and with, with uh, Janusz Głowacki, um, who didn't write, but they kind of came to play with, you know, in the room. Uh, and uh, and I started kind of s making it a bit, m stripping it down, making it more compact, reducing a story that took 40 years originally to 15 years, so, uh, and reducing the twists and, you know, limiting the twists and turns in the story. Mm, and, then, and then it helped to imagine the folk ensemble as a device. Uh, uh, but there was never a fixed script. You know, there were like 159 versions of the script. The only script there is is, is if somebody transcribed the film, and that would probably be like 15 pages, I imagine. <laughs> uh, uh, well, there was a script on which we kind of looked for, with which we looked for money, 
because you need to raise money and that's what scripts are for mainly uh, so, and, and that was a kind of the longest version probably 60 pages and it had a lot of scenes which are just there to explain you know who is who and how we got from A to B which I kind of knew we, we'd get rid of but it helped the readers to to get into it and feel informed um, and then and then during the rehearsals and location scouting I kept rewriting it and, and sending the latest version to Tanya the producer and and every uh, and then there's some good dialogues that you know that were there but other dialogues kind of occurred in the process you know sometimes you know you, you know when you when you have your knife on your throat you kind of come up with good ideas you know sometimes like. um, so it was always work in progress, and because of this uh, this strategy of shooting and editing a bit, you know, I was constantly tweaking it and cutting scenes that felt unnecessary before even shooting them. You know, there are quite a lot of scenes like that. There was, for example, there's a scene where, as an example, where Kaczmarek, before the, the before Tom uh, before Victor escapes in in Berlin, where Kaczmarek um, corners Zula and because he knows they, they're having an affair. So he, so he, so he corners her uh, and, and tells her, you know, don't think of this guy because he's made of different ilk. You know, he's just, a, you know, you and I, we have something in common. We come from... And it was quite a well-written scene and the two actors kind of loved it. And then and I thought, um, that w you know, looking at what we're shooting, I thought we totally don't need it. You know, what he's saying is kind of evident anyway. Um, so then Boris Schitz, who really cherished that scene was totally demoralizing so <laughs> my, my best scene like, I said, don't worry you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have a great character on screen but it's not all about just dialogue scenes you know and, and explaining stuff so so there was constantly that you know and, uh, and a lot of scenes that kind of felt good when you read them but actually when you have to shoot it it's kind of this drab you know so we tried to just go for stuff that's really visually strong has some poetry about it and a certain rhythm and still gives you enough information to to make sense of of what happened in between you know between the scenes yes hello so this is the second time i watched this film because i love it so much um and like this lovely lady said the, it's so striking that there's hardly any dialogue and most of the things happen actually in between the lines so how was it in terms of casting did you write the script and you had both of them in mind or did you improvise a lot or did you um, try things out? I don't know, it's so, just so striking that there's no dialogue and it's in between there's the lines. There's some funny lines, you know, <laughs> here and there. In, in Poland, audiences laugh yeah, quite a lot. But, <laughs> but um, especially when Kaczmarek speaks. But... Um, I, they were, I mean, I was when I was. I mean, talking about casting. When I was writing, uh, imagining um, Zula, I kept thinking about uh, Joanna Kulik, who I'd worked with a couple of times before, and who was very much in the right ballpark. Plus, she could sing. Um, so, uh, she was always in. You know, not always, but she just came up all the time. Oh, oh she'd be doing that. She'd be great jumping off the bar, you know, um, or falling off the bar. And she has these kind of like energy, <laughs> energy shifts, uh, and uh, and she's charming, you know, and blonde. Like my, she looked a bit like my mother, and her, you know, that that helped. Uh, and 
and with the, with the leading man, I was for a long time hoping to find a musician who can act, you know, because there's kind of this magic when you actually have uh, people perform live in front of you. Uh, and I came across a, a, a musician who was great, but who couldn't act, but then he helped me with the jazz arrangements in the film. Marcin Masetsky, a kind of wonderful musician, arranger. Uh, so anyway, then, uh, then I, I knew I had to find an actor, and an actor who looks like a like a fifties actor, you know, like a fifties man rather, you know, this kind of somebody who's born before the war, who's a certain just kind of masculine without being macho uh, and sensitive and masculine, you know, and and who has an aura of a kind of pre-war intelligentsia, and he's good looking as well. So Tom Marshcott was really good good for, for that uh, and when it came to dialogues there were some dialogues There's, you know in the script there was some, there were more dialogues here and there you know which we kind of tried out and and uh, and 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 sometimes threw away sometimes refined um there was enough material to, to work with you know f um, uh, and there was some there weren't exactly many rehearsals but the readings you know i used to invite them for a reading and let's let's read it out and just listen to it how, how does it sound and also these readings helped them to get closer and closer into the world of the film. So for about six months, they did nothing but prepare for the film. Prepare also physically, because Joanna had to learn to dance, you know, so she went and spent a lot of time with the folk ensemble Mazovsha to the headquarters, and twice a week she spent a whole day learning the steps, the choreography. Um, and Tomasz had to learn to conduct and play the piano or to pretend, you know. He actually learned the piano from zero. He learned to play Claire de Lune by Debussy, which I never used, but but um it. <laughs> <laughs> but um not the entire piece, just the first forty seconds. Uh, uh so you know, so there's a lot of kind of physical work which actually is as important f for the character, you know, as as kind of mental. Uh, mental work, um, so they were kind of we're kind of approaching. So, sometimes you know we just went into the park and tried out a scene, physical scene, you know, like you know the stuff on the river or some other scene. Then uh, I spent a lot of time with 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 a kind of, with an Italian choreographer who lives in Warsaw doing the rock and roll, rock around the clock stuff, you know, just to make sure that the the the, the choreography works there. Uh, so th that was quite a, a long process. Um, uh, but in the end, when we shot it, actually, it looked too rehearsed, so I kind of disrupted the whole thing, and, and you know, and, but it kind of worked in a roundabout way. But you weren't asking me about that, no? <laughs> sorry, sorry, I got carried away. Um, yes, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was stunning. You've talked a lot about music, which I know less about, but I know um, how much I liked it visually. And you mentioned Cartier-Bresson, and I could... I was thinking of that all the way, <laughs> all the way through. How how much were you influenced by photography and still photography? The great black and white photographers, Ansel Adams, and then in the in the scene in the river, I kept thinking of Ophelia. I mean, I kept on thinking of you know, Stuff. Uh, sort of art references to it, and that stunning, stunning um, shot where you look up in, w which looks like the Parthenon in Rome with trees growing around it. Ah, the, the church with, a, yes. with no... I mean, that, that was sublime. Without the door. Y yeah, I mean, it was... Um, we didn't look at too many photographers. We looked at photogra period photography, photography from jazz clubs in Paris, photography around the folk ensembles. So it wasn't... Uh, it was more... F 
and, and some of them were very good, but they weren't done by great, great artists, um, great photographers. The Ophelia shot, I was, you know, when I wrote it, I was thinking more of Eo in Winnie the Pooh, you know, floating down the river. But, <laughs> but Ophelia, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually, no, no. Um, yeah, no, there was, and, and, and this cupola, I mean, it wasn't that I designed the shot, but I actually, in the script, wrote mm, there should be Wemko churches in southeastern Poland. They, they, they were the Ruthenian Orthodox minority had been kicked out of there you know, after the war. But there a lot of, when I was a kid, I used to walk, walk around with my father around that area. He spent the war time in that area. And I remember these great wooden Wemko churches, so I put it in. And then we went to recce these churches, and they were, they didn't, wood doesn't photograph very well, you know, so they were all wrong. So out of desperation, I just said to my production designers, Kaspar David Friedrich, you know, just like as a general kind of <laughs> reference. So, so the, and then, you know, they went on the internet, and we started looking, and, and on the internet, we found this ruined church, you know, which was 100 kilometers away, or also Orthodox church, but not Wemko church. So it was. It wasn't so kind of scientific and methodical. You know, it was m more. You know, what's going to work on, 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 on screen. Um, but of course, you know, I'd, I'd watched a lot of, you know, f films and also a lot of great photographers' work. You know, so it's all there somewhere. And so did my DP. But it's it's when you actually do something, it's it's not so. Mm, it's not so arty farty. You know, you just kind of go and see what, what works. <laughs> I think is that uh, time up? Yeah. Thank you, Pablo. It's a, Thank you it's very a fantastic much. Fantastic film. Thank you.